Welcome to African Film. African film lovers and cinematic explorers, welcome to another episode of the African Film Podcast. Now, if this is your first time hearing about us, welcome. This is a space where we explore the African film industry through the eyes of its practitioners. In studio with me is a film technician, a master in the art of color. This man is primarily known as a cinematographer and colorist, having graded work for music videos, films, adverts, and experimental projects alike. His work also extends to writing and directing, as you can find a number of short films he's worked on online, including The Soulful Windows of solitude. This artist's work has also extended into technology with him working on a project that served to redefine the way that melanated skin is captured on screen. I'm talking about Ndumiso Nguni. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. I'm just curious to where the hell you find all this information. God damn. <laughs> that was stuff I'd even forgotten that I'd done. Oh no, we have to do our research when, when we bring guests on. We have, I have to know about who it is I'm talking about, right? Yeah. How are you, How you doing, doing this uh, lovely winter evening? It's, uh, it's a bit cold. I think we, especially you know, in Joburg, where we have real winters. I'm originally from Durban, and uh, it isn't as cold down there. Yeah, because you guys actually have the warm coastal region like hitting you right there. You have the humid air, and then there's Cape Town. We, we don't talk about Cape Town. There are two types of people in the country that I can say can speak about winters. People from Joburg, there might be more, and from Cape Town. Whenever I hear people in Durban say, hey man, it's cold, I'm like, guys, stop, stop playing, man. <laughs> stop. You don't know what the cold's like. Stop playing, so man. now on the African Film Podcast, uh, this actually used to start it off as an online film club. So we often always ask one question to every single person that comes on the podcast, which is, what is your favorite African film and why? My favorite African film has to be Mother of George. I think primarily because probably one of the first few films that I looked at and I could derive a sense of what uh, African cinema could be besides, you know, being aware of South African filmography, I think that's one of the first films I'd look at and say, from a global perspective, that's what, what I might term to be an African film. Uh, what is it about the film that actually sparked that thing of making you say this is what African film could be? Where is that kind of stemming from? It might be maybe purely from the subject matter in you know exploring our sort of traditional framework. I know that traditional frameworks differ greatly because you know each African country is its own has its own set of values and systems and traditions and culture. But I think speaking more from a global perspective, um, I think it's the framework of the tradition that the sort of the film kind of explores. I think even aesthetically, uh, just in terms of uh, maybe how Bradford Young kind of chooses to portray the aesthetic, the lighting the sort of maison scene, something that just kind of, uh, I don't want to say it, is, it doesn't use a western lens to portray itself, but um, it is very aggressive and different in texture in terms of how it kind of portrays its imagery. I shall definitely look into that. Please, please watch it. I think you'll love it. I'm always often very curious to know how people find their passions, especially when those passions aren't in highly publicized fields. So... What got you into filmmaking, but not just specifically filmmaking, but coloring? What, what what was the thing that kind of got you into filmmaking, coloring, and that like sphere of thinking? Initially, I wanted to be an animator, but films, you know, I've watched films for as long as I can remember. I guess I'd, I'd always been a, kind of attracted to the escapism that uh, films can bring, uh, where you, mm. know, you get into a theater and you're in this black box and you're watching these big images, larger than life characters um, that you kind of desire to, to be like or be a part of that world. And then I think by the time I, I graduated from high school, I was like, yeah, what do you do? You go into animation, which at the time, I don't know if it's changed, there weren't enough animation schools in the country. It's still something in South Africa that isn't as mainstream as it should be. So, you know, film and TV was kind of the next, or like, or fine art. Film and TV was kind of the next thing. It was either that or fine art. I looked at fine art and I was just like, man, I don't want that theory. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> 
I'm not gonna lie, I ran away from buying art. The theory, just from the trick, the theory is too aggressive. So, you know, I, I did a, it was one of these, like, what do you call these, like, uh, like, you know, they're not like an opening course, but I was introduction to, you know, what it might be. So we did this walk around and I saw cameras and I'm like, okay, well, this, you know, looks, looks pretty interesting. Uh, there's technology and things to tinker around with. That's how I ended up in film. Um, which, yeah, I, mean, when it, I think when we're looking at the, how I ended up in sort of like, you know, posts and color grading, I've always been interested in how things like look polished. I think maybe that's where, you know, kind of you started from where, you know, would shoot stuff and it still wouldn't look as good as like some of the stuff that you really look up to and you like. Uh, so I started looking up what's the secret thing that, uh, you know, people are doing to get the images and their projects, you know, in a certain place where they look and feel a certain way. And I came across this thing called, you know, coloring. And I guess, you know, I just became the rabbit hole that I went down on. And uh, yeah, here I am. So that was more so after you'd even studied film, it was more so something which you kind of like jumped in to kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, went, I went to television school at DUT, Durban University of Technology. I think I came in at the time where the technology was kind of overlapping with the, you know, the, the technology that film was using. Because originally, like film and TV were extremely, extremely different. But with the yeah. advent of like centers and stuff, it kind of overlapped somewhere. I think the difference became more in methodology as opposed to like the, the, the technology, I guess. I think that's what kind of um, sort of gave me like a bridging point. It was more television based. And I think in television, there's a thing called vision engineering. It sounded complicated at the time, you know, when you're a student. It was just, you know, it was balancing cameras, I guess. So if you have like a studio thing or a football match, and maybe there's like, I don't know, seven cameras, uh, get all the cameras to kind of like, balance out you know like make sure that the white's white and the blacks are black and you're done <laughs> and you know that's i think that's maybe potentially the introduction into kind of how i just went further that was the premise basically as to what coloring is and i think there's always been that thing that asked okay cool how do you use this creatively like we get the, the, the technical the basics but what else can you do using this type of thinking now, that very much links into the project which you've actually been working on for the past couple of years with melanin cinematography, which seeks to reframe how it is. Melanated skin, specifically African and Indian skin, is both lit and captured. So can you give us like a brief overview on melanin cinematography and actually what started this journey? Because you're also mentioning about like how things are finished and the finishing product and when you say that in terms of that's what got you into coloring it now kind of clicks for me as to even how melanin cinematography even then from your driving force then pulls that in melanin cinematography started very weirdly um i think at the time it was it might have been 20 2017 i think where i met uh you know my friend and mentor Dube. and it was him who actually made me aware of the sort of like inherent bias in film history especially the t t technology i guess because yeah. we we all kind of, we all kind of assume that cameras are objective they just capture <laughs> things as they are and he's the guy who kind of opened up the journey in a sense that he made me aware of the sort of inherent bias and then i kind of went into you know doing a bit of research and i was like oh heck there's a whole there's the study on this thing like uh, the sort of political framework of you know capture technology and how it hasn't always sort of catered for um, sort of the, the, the diaspora in a sense that, you know, there were things like Shirley cards and stuff, which were essentially designed as calibration tools for Caucasian skin. I guess that's where the big question came in. It's like, okay, cool. If, if we, you know, we come from a background where you know, film stocks were designed for Caucasian skins, I guess to a certain degree, it made sense from the guys that could afford film, they're all, you know, majority Caucasian people. But on another level, why do they have to sort of focus on making, you know, Caucasian skin look good? What about the rest of the population that isn't in that sort of spectrum of hue? And that's, uh, yeah. Do you mind just going in into a little bit? Because I know uh, when I was reading about it, it was actually the first time that I'd ever heard of the concept called Shirley Card. So can you also just explain a little bit more about what the concept of Shirley Cards are in terms of even how they were designed and the history of them so that we can, uh, um, I think, will help us better understand the magnitude of how it is cameras yeah. are as you kind of say, not objective in terms of the way that we view skin through the lens of a camera. So Shirley cards were calibration tools that were 
sort of meant to calibrate uh, film to kind of recognize and represent Caucasian skin as best as it could. So accurately, I guess. I think the word to use is accurately. And they were only designed for primarily Caucasian skin. Uh, all the other sort of you know, skin tone hues weren't, I don't know what word to use, but they weren't, they weren't uh, included, I Consented. guess. They weren't considered. Um, and there, were, there were various reasons as to why they, why they weren't considered. But I think the main one was, or the idea was that economically, the target market that were purchasing cameras and film stock were uh, white people. So there's a certain period where certain photographers were filming things that were brown and chocolate, wood, and things of the sort, that when they realized that the film stock wasn't able to reproduce those hues accurately, photographers came through and they asked the manufacturer, which at the time was Kodak, and they, you know, told them that, you know, your film can't reproduce these hues, like these browns. And, you know, luckily, <laughs> brown just happened to be where we are in the spectrum. So when they decided to fix that problem, we benefited because, <laughs> you know, we just happened to be in that, you know, that, that scale of hue. Uh, you know, and, and not to say that there weren't people who were challenging that before, but I think at the time, the, the people in that era were also in the same boat that you and I are, where you didn't, you know, we didn't know that there was a bias that was there before. We just knew that, you know, if you're really dark, you just don't look good. On camera. You know, your photos just don't look good. We know now that isn't necessarily the truth. We can all look really good. It's just based on what the intent is in the design of the technology, I guess, or the design of the film stock or the sensor. Um, and yeah, when Kodak decided to fix that problem, kind of reintroduced the chemicals which were stripped before, uh, the chemicals that really did well with reproducing sort of the yellow, brown, red hues, skin tone reproduction got better for us too. I think later on, you know, I think in the, between the 70s and the 90s, I think they, they did upgrade from the Shirley card. I'm sure you've seen these sort of like these prints of these cards where there'll be you know, an Asian person in there and there'll be an African person in there, there'll be a white person. That's, it just, they kind of became more inclusive and more sort of politically correct as the times kind of changed. Just to just to confirm, so then would you then kind of say uh, Shirley cards, essentially what they were there for doing is if a photographer wanted to capture a specific type of skin or a specific type of thing, they would then use the Shirley cards. The Shirley cards would tell them specifically what settings would be most primed to be able to then shoot this type of thing. Yes, so when you're saying that then chocolate is what allowed us to kind of get included, it was because they were kind of seeing how it is that shooting chocolate and making chocolate for advertising purposes, I'm pres presuming to look yeah. good, mm -hmm. would then that's how then um, chocolate type of skin was then included into what is considered from a hue perspective to be capturable on camera. Precisely. <laughs> I know it's, it's kind of messed up <laughs> but precisely yeah no because I, I just wanted to kind of also just for purposes just to make sure that I that also I fully understand the people understand like it's it's yeah. these are the settings in terms of it's how it is that people were framed so that so yeah. then that would also mean that the the hues which aren't necessarily close to like milk chocolate in terms of photographing those hues would also kind of be a little bit stretched out would that be an assumption to make that then since the darker you go away from like milk chocolate that would then kind of become a bit more harder to capture or not as considered more or less i think you know if, if you're lighter you probably kind of benefited from the sort of photochemical process in the film yeah, I think more or less, you probably benefited if you were lighter as opposed to, you know, being darker. And then you said it was around the 90s and it, they then started now calibrating specifically to then add more Asian more type inclusive. of, yeah, to be more inclusive. And that's also kind of when we started getting a lot more um, like black film stars. <laughs> um, I know that's not related, but uh, if I'm, we I'm, look... I'm, I'm, I'm sure somewhere you could draw the parallels. I'm sure, no, that, I mean... <laughs> the 90s was when we got our Will Smiths, our Halle Berries, our Den Denzel was from like, like the late like 80s, 80s, but he really yeah, like, like bloomed. It's like, it's like 80s, 90s, yeah. Yeah, he <laughs> really sure, bloomed. I'm sure you could draw the parallels. Into them being more inclusive and that actually then allowing a lot more um, Black stars to kind of be stars in the way that we kind of see them as stars, whether that be sexualized, whether that be kind of deified. No, because when you were saying that, I was kind of just looking because like from the 80s, we had your Donald Glovers, but those weren't necessarily like given the 
leading star appeal that a Will Smith was given type of thing. Yeah. And was positioned. Okay, cool. So now that we have Shirley cards, you can <laughs> jump back into melanin cinematography and where Shirley cards then fits into what it is melanin cinematography is doing. So, you know, after, you know, finding out there's this bias, which I couldn't believe, we went down this rabbit hole where, you know, we're just researching about the subject matter and just trying to get, get a better grounding of exactly what it is that we're trying to say, which at the time was quite daunting, because you're basically saying that in the history of, like, photographic history, I guess, that you're saying that they've been wrong, which is scary as shit. You know, you just say an entire history of taking photos, there is a flaw, which at the time was like, really daunting and, and in some aspects exciting because you're kind of on the cusp of something new i guess in a sense that there is a body of knowledge that you have a you know an opportunity in contributing because i feel like in the history of image making or in film i think african people haven't really had a an opportunity to contribute to that body of growing knowledge and if anything this came across as an opportunity to be able to do that i think at first it was a very uncomfortable conversation to have with people especially in spaces where you know you're speaking to organizations and companies and stuff which are majority you know white owned we had to learn how to have the conversation in a way that wasn't like necessarily offensive or, or combative came across or combative or came across as like politically driven because it, you know it can rustle ru- 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 you know uh, rustle ruffle some feathers <laughs> yeah it can no, it's, man it, 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 it can. It's, it's inherently is quite a combative it's not inherently combative but trying to then state that this is wrong has a combative part to it if you're then kind of refuting something when essentially yeah. what you're just trying to say is hey we can be filmed better we were not considered as well as we could have been considered prior because you can also kind of find similar i believe you can find similar parallels in makeup and how the last five years there have been a lot more shades that have now catered to non-white skin to be able to kind of just make non-white skin makeup wise if you're looking at your fenties if you look at all of these different like makeup lines it's a very recent yeah it's it's a very recent occurrence where we are now being considered to be able to make things which are catered and are solely for us, not things which just happened, which we can now use to make us look better, but it's not necessarily actually targeting what it is that's specific to melanated skin. Again, I think you probably draw the the parallels with like makeup and sort of camera technology. And, you know, I think the other arguments that, you know, one might come up with if we're looking at the advent of digital cameras, one might say, okay, cool, well, that was in the film days. That's a different thing. But I think a lot of people don't really know or understand that most cameras that you know came after the film era, they're designed uh, to kind of emulate what film did. So the ideology from film still kind of carried across into a sort of sensor making. So to a certain degree, that bias still kind of applied. Not to say that it hasn't improved, but it has immensely. I think camera technology has come a long way with cameras that are able to capture a larger dynamic range, bigger color spaces. So it's not to say that the tools can't do it, they can. It's just that you got to learn how to tell them to do that. I think one of the conversations is how do we make that more efficient and how do we make that more simpler to do as opposed to maybe some secret source thing that you do that just gets them to look amazing that somebody else doesn't know you know they have to spend like 10 years trying to figure out how to get that specific thing right exactly so i think after being in fear of like okay cool how do we how do we address this we kind of figured out that it's i guess our area of focus is how do we use the technology to do the work for the filmmaker or for the photographer where you don't have to have the secret process that you know you use to get the skin to look good the technology is already doing that for you and you can just focus on being creative i think that's where we kind of got to a point where we, you know, we might have something yeah we might have something to contribute if we start looking at it from that framework and yeah i think that's you know that's then that's what we're doing right now to go back to the makeup thing, the, the, the parallels with the makeup world are like, I think they're, they're really close. And I can say this in a sense where we've done a few tests, I think in the past year, I guess, when we we're doing some tests for Silver and Siege, where I think even we were kind of shocked at how 
um, and it was kind of silly to be shocked at the same time, but it was, you know, <laughs> it was it was stupid. Because, you know, in our mechanical brains, we think it has to be the camera and just the lighting. But, you know, after going through a series of tests, you know, looking at certain camera bodies like the Sony Venice, uh, the, you know, RE Alexa, the LF, and the, the Red Helium, we realized what a huge part of the, the, you know, the combination makeup is where you can have the same, you know, same camera, same lens, but the, the shift in makeup creates extremely, you know, different results. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is the same, same lighting, same everything. You just change your makeup and how that just changes how, you know, the skin looks. Uh, it yeah. Was, it was kind of like, it was really, it was crazy. But at the same time, when you think of it, like it should be pretty logical. <laughs> well, yeah, because um, if you also look at conversations, I tend to view a lot of like these variety talks. But over the last like five years, you'd hear a lot of stories of... And I think it still happens to this day when you when you hear about a Viola Davis or any of these actors and actresses talking about when they would go on to big sets that no one would know how to do their hair and makeup. And a lot of the times they themselves had to do their own hair and makeup. And if the actors themselves are the ones that are doing their hair and makeup, it kind of also states implicitly that makeup, I shouldn't say that that makeup isn't the best that it can be, but if they have to then do it themselves when a professional isn't catering to them, then even the full effect of what it is that they're supposed to be getting and what could be done doesn't then correlate with what could be the final product. There have been specific shows that have been um, working to kind of put that like at the forefront. So for example, like a Black Lady sketch show, which has everyone pulling in to kind of make sure that everything is catered towards Black skin since the cast is primarily Black and everyone behind yeah. it also knows all of these things are things that they have, that have been working against them without knowing that it's working against them or knowing that it's working against them, but now aligned to try and see what can we do to kind of make this as best and catered for as humanly possible. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the the things that is beautiful is that we get to define, you know, what is aesthetically pleasing to us. I think that's important. Um, I think historically being left out, might it is a negative thing. But I think it also gives us a chance now to kind of like, create the blueprint or create the you know our own rule book as to how exactly you want to be portrayed that's a powerful thing where now we're seeing you know makeup brands that are made by africans from an understanding of our own skin and hair those coming to the forefront commercially um, it's like if we don't do it who else is going to do it i don't blame the europeans for not taking on that responsibility it is kind of up to us to kind of understand ourselves and contribute to that body of knowledge from ourselves uh, you know somebody else might argue differently but yeah I, th I think it's important that it comes from us and hopefully we'd be allowed at the table to sort of define what that looks like one of the key things that I think is important to aesthetic representation is how it has an influence on self-esteem. I remember growing up in the late 90s, you in the theater, watching cinema, and at the time, maybe I may be mistaken, but at the time, most of the sort of blockbusters we were watching were, like, you know, they were white people. Yeah. So from, you know, white people portraying, the, you know, themselves cinematically to a black kid, it's like... Some part of you like is like, I wish I was that. How they were lit, uh, how they looked, larger than life, sort of like you know representation. And especially as as a, as a black kid and you know and in multiracial school, there's something that happens mentally to yourself and and your identity and what that is and what is attached to. There is a part of you that just wants to be that, and. I think at the time, as a kid, it was hard to see anything outside of that because that's all you were watching. That's all. That was, that's what was there in the theaters. So yeah. it's it did kind of shape my outlook you know, on life, I guess, as a person, as an African. It did kind of, you know, it, it, I think it kind of makes you question. It's like, you know, why am I the black guy, you know? <laughs> I mean, or even for me, like... like I can speak from a writing <laughs> perspective and yeah. I came to this realization I think about two years into filmmaking I've been writing scripts since I was about eight years old uh no ten years old Damn, I was man. writing like poetry from been. like eight yeah but um you been, you're like a prodigy <laughs> <laughs> well uh <laughs> I was but, running around kicking balls in mud and shit <laughs> no, during, like, during school crazy. holidays me and my computer I was there <laughs> Man, just writing amazing. scripts and trying, <laughs> trying to figure out 
But um, I realized around my second year in the actual industry, implicitly in the way that I would write, when I'm not talking about um, movies which I was writing for myself, characters which were like me, I would never center the story around them. And even as myself, there's this whole thing that sometimes people say, like, you have to be the protagonist in your own story. I'd always kind of viewed myself as I'm not the protagonist. I am the really helpful sidekick that mm-hmm. other kind of peoples are. So every time I'd write characters which are like myself, they would be in those frames. I didn't know that I was doing it intentionally, but it was around that time that I was like, oh, wait, I actually don't... Um, when I'm speaking about stuff which is autobiographical, even stuff which is within that nature of, I'm now doing a blockbuster type of idea that I wanna think, I didn't center. It's like I can't be this guy. No, yeah. can't be the main guy. <laughs> and if he, and, and if he is, there has to be something else that's kind of working against it. So I, I relate to that quite deeply because it showed in my writing. And then I've had to systematically now work and when I'm writing something and I'm writing these characters I'm like what am I actually saying with these characters um why am I putting this character in this specific position what does that say from a dynamic perspective because there's so much psychology that goes behind writing and in building these characters and living in these characters that if all you kind of see are the thug characters being the leads as well um thug and specific type of archetypes and the archetype which you fit into is not that you then don't center yourself or that type of experience is something which can be explored and then now recently now that you're seeing it explored you're like oh wait stories like the, the how i grew up is a framework that can be given depth I've I've now gone in a deep tangent, but I, ooh, yeah, this, yeah, and you, you, yeah, you have to give to give it content. I almost feel like it's a, I don't know which you know, I don't know when you're born, but it almost feels like there's a certain generation of us that kind of uh, maybe post apartheid in that '90s brackets that really like experienced that you know thing. Whereas I question whether somebody who's born now might you know experience that. I don't think so. It's like we we we're building the sort of. Uh, I would say library where yes and you know, no. Uh, I've uh, from the people that I've 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 worked with, they they're actually a lot more bolder in terms of the way that they frame themselves. You can even see it in the way that they kind of talk in the music that they try and play. So it's like it's the younger you get, it's 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 changing. Um, it, it it changes a little bit more, and you become less unafraid. I feel like where we are as Africans is a little bit I shouldn't say behind, but like we're not at the Atlanta level of when I say Atlanta being able to view ourselves because we still have to like break the barriers of like saying uh, what is a middle-class black family what are these different um, folds that we can look at how many good father figures do we have in actually African stories so there's so many different things that we kind of have to just it's not even um, innovate but put on the map <laughs> And then once, yeah. <laughs> once it's on the map, you're like, okay, so we did this wrong this time. Maybe we can kind of iterate it this way. We did this. Yeah, it's a very deep topic. I understand why you went into it because there's so much to unpack. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I question whether, you know, I think the generation, oh man, makes me sound so old. The guys coming up now, whether, you know, they might come across the same thing that we did kind of growing up and looking at, you know, sort of this portrayal of, uh, you know, white people in cinema, or if it's going to be a different experience for them because we're kind of building the building blocks for a portrayal of like, you know, African people on the big screen and what that looks like. And social media has helped change that in terms of YouTube content because you get to see your representation. You get that affirmation a lot quicker because even if it's not on the big screen, you have your favorite yeah. YouTube star who's doing amazing sketches and you're like, ah, yeah. yes, <laughs> I know that person type of thing. Not, e- not, not even know. He just looks like me or he or she looks like me. They Somebody talk like me. Like me. That's yeah. doing it, you know. I think Africans, especially politically, they, they don't place enough emphasis on ownership over the aesthetic or identity, which I think they really should. I mean, you look at the Asians and you know that's all the industry, the West. It almost seems like and not to be political, it almost seems like they understand the importance of owning how one portrays themselves in a narrative and how the effects that come from that may be positive or negative. And I say this because it took me a long time to see people like me in a light where they could be sent to stage 
or a story could be based around them and they could be the main character. And it has an effect on self-esteem where you're already in, in a you know, multiracial school where you're learning primarily European history anyway, as it's kind of reminding you of how great they are. You're already watching films, which your people, you're, you're not you're not the center of that world. So it's like, what do you have? And there has been a time where I've asked myself, what have we and contributed to the world? Like, And because you don't, you're, you're a teenager, you're a kid, you don't know any better. You know? You're not really... Yeah, you, you're not putting the historical yeah. context of we've been subjugated yeah. or we've, or this happened or surely cards exist to kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Like, that stuff really skips you. It's not even there. I think only when I got to, to university where, you know, you start coming across a wider variety of perspectives where you're like, oh, shit, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that in my sort of schooling experience that either I wasn't taught or I didn't come across. Where that's where you start to open up and, you know, like, you know, let me look into this. You try and find the positive things that you've contributed to the world and you find out there's a shitload. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, we are. We're like, yeah, we did contribute some big things, man. It's just they're not, they're they're not, not highly you know, publicized. accessible. They're publicized. I think maybe not maybe excessive. They're not publicized. Yeah. And on a human level, that does kind of bring something positive. Like there is some part of your, your history that's like, oh, we're part of some really important things in human history. And I think that's important for every individual to, to feel like they're part of a group of people that have contributed immensely to the human experience. And you have the ability and to yeah. for agency. Yeah, yeah. That aspect of ownership of how we portray ourselves is important for young African kids to have a point of reference to look up to. That's had an effect on, on me as a kid, for sure. I can say, I, I remember when I was a kid, just there's this yearning to be like, why couldn't I be white? And that's a real thing. There are other people who come from my generation who could probably relate to the same thing. And it's just really based on what you're seeing as, as a child, what it is that's in front of you. You can go back to old films where the black, you know, guy just, or the black characters just never looked amazing. And it's psychologically, it may be very subconscious, but it's kind of working against you. So now bringing back ownership and you're talking about you were doing test footage, you were testing a lot of this, the, the technology that you're working on for Melanin Cinematography on Silverton Siege. Where are you now in the process of Melanin and Cinematography and the the framework with which you guys are building on? Where we are now is, I think we're, we're at a point where we're trying to design tools that kind of work for the filmmaker in a sense that one can put on a camera and there's an automatic process that the technology is doing with feeding it the right information and it knowing how to adjust itself so that whatever's in front of it looks good. So the, the first sort of phase where we started is creating our own color chart. Um, there's what we call the Macbeth chart, which is like the industry standard. Um, I'm sure you've seen one most of the time if they're doing like camera test or the first take. We'll have like this checkered chart that has yeah. all these different colors. Um, I don't know what's you know, called the Macbeth that's, that's chart. Kind of... I know the chart. I just didn't know what's called the Macbeth chart. I think it's, it's called the Macbeth chart. The other names called color chart. Some people call it other stuff. But I think the D Macbeth chart is kind of like the, the most common name. And that's, you know, that's a image calibration tool, which is designed to sort of calibrate cameras and match scenes. The Macbeth chart as a standard, I think it uses two, maybe three at most sort of pantones or blocks to calibrate skin and make sense of skin. And from experience, I found that when you try and automatically calibrate a piece of footage to a recording, I don't know if you're familiar with anything sort of color grading based. Everything I have done thus far has been more self-taught in the coloring space. So I'm going to call myself a beginner and just assume I don't know. <laughs> so let me simplify it. I think in the sort of conversion process from, you know, from log, let's say for instance, you shot on an ARRI and it's in log C and you're trying to convert it to Rec 709, which Rec 709, I think you put it in, in simplistic terms as you're trying to convert it from the gray flat looking thing to something that resembles what your eye might see in terms of like the color the contrast you know, it just kind of looks natural to the human brain yeah and in that process of conversion from blog to rec 709 if the skin tones and frame don't fall within the sort of spectrum of hue that the the chart is designed to sort of like you know kind of center on as a standard it kind of gets it wrong to a certain degree like it either might be too contrasty and if you're really dark it doesn't really like map itself around certain hues properly. 
Yeah. If we looked at it and we're like, okay, cool. This looks like we're looking at maybe redesigning or coming up with a new chart, which samples at a higher rate. It has a larger sample of skin tones for like, you know, to, to calibrate to so that when you're doing the automatic conversions, it's more inclusive in how it maps for the range of skin tones, not just like two or three. It might have been intentional, might have not. I just think maybe, you know, Caucasian skin isn't as complex as like melanin or melanated skin in terms of the, just the, the range. I may be wrong. Maybe that's my bias. I'm looking at it from just to try to understand why a chart would maybe just use two or three blocks to kind of calibrate for skin. And skin's like the most important thing in storytelling, I guess. Most of the day, you're coming across faces. It's, you know, it's other humans. So we're very familiar with what skin's supposed to look like. So yeah. it kind of is weird that, you know, you'd calibrate, you know, you'd sample less for something that a majority of your human focus is on, you know, the skin. So I, so I think I'm coming from it from that perspective. Okay. So we're in the process of developing this, you know, this color chart, which is for now, we decided to call it the Naledi chart. Um <laughs> Um, which is kind of based on a higher sample or representation of the range of skin tones that kind of exists. I think it's between like, I think, 9, 9 to 13 sort of like shades of skin. In, the, in that aspect, the idea is to have a calibration process which is automatically more accurate. So since you've done um, stuff on Silverton Seed, are there any other shows that have kind of like been tested on in terms of like even your snowfalls and stuff? Or do they fall into the same framework? They do kind of fall into the same framework. I think on Silverton Siege, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's the first time where our sort of thought processes were a bit, you know, a lot more intentional and guided. But I think it's Silverton Siege is essentially, I think, one of the first experiences where... From a South African perspective, we really intentionally, when we came in with, a, with an intention, I guess, that was kind of specifically based on making African skin look really good, just curating the process, I guess. Uh, and not to say it hasn't been done before. It's been done before like a million times. But I think that the important thing that we are saying, what DMC is saying per se, is we're not saying that you know African skin or black skin has never looked great in, in, in cinematic history. It has. There's some, you know, there are a lot of films where I could pull out examples where skin looks amazing. We're just saying that there's a way to make the process more automatic or the technology is doing the work for you. And curating this process in this way is kind of the beginning of that dialogue or that conversation. We're, we're looking at, you know, makeup, looking at lighting, camera choice, lensing choices, and how the marriage or the pairing of those or curating of those uh, different you know, departments can kind of aid that conversation. But, you know, and on the other end, on the more technological framework, it's how do we build sensors that are more sort of catering and inclusive of, you know, this sort of medium that we're talking about. I think that's pretty much what DMC is saying. It's not saying that it hasn't been done before, that there are no films where black people don't look great. But it's saying that it shouldn't be a secret source. It shouldn't be the sort of secret process that you have to be like a master of the black arts to, to do it. You should just ideally switch on the camera. And, it and have that preset and that preset can help you get exactly what Absolutely. it is So then for you in the next, ideally then where, where would you like to see this going in the next, let's say, three to five years? I would like to see standards set, you know, I think standards are where, you know, the real sort of conversation begins when we create a standard, where we become a standard. But I think it's, it's really crucial. I think the major win, I think, in terms of our sort of process with the with DMC and on, on Silverton Siege, which is probably the first of many, is to at least get the sort of best practices conversation going. I think it is there in the credits at the end, where DMC is credited as you know, the best practice, which is a great first step in the right direction. But ideally, we're pushing for standards where it's a it's, it's a norm. It's a thing that is recognized in, in the entire film community in the world. I think that's where really the, the intention is to be with the color charts and the sort of plugins and the tools and the cameras where you know those are kind of catered for and we are seeing it happen i think that is a there is a i think a a, a shift that is happening in, in camera technology where i think you'll see iphone kind of like pushing the whole marketing on skin i think ari is also like on that same conversation right now i've been seeing with the i think the alexa 35 where there's this sort of push for skin tone 
uh, range, any range of skin tone looking amazing. So there is this, this inherent uh, attention now that's being put into African people and the tools kind of working and making them look good you know, in camera without having to do like secret source things. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely a conversation happening. <laughs> it's just, I, I think the important thing is for us to be at, at the table also contributing and making decisions. Otherwise, it just it goes back to the same thing where it's like, okay, cool, it's, it's decisions being made for us, not by us which is kind of like defeats the purpose, I guess. And then what about for you as Ndumiso outside of the scope of BMC? I think it's like you and I, my brother. It's, you know, you want to you wanna be a part of amazing stories. I think that's, you know, that besides being colorist, the core, you know, we're still filmmakers. You just happen to be really good at this one part of it. And it's being a part of amazing stories, stories that you hopefully translate and you can get lost in. Um, I think that happens really ever so often. That's, you know, that's the, that's the goal is to be a part of amazing stories where you look at it and you feel proud of it. And everybody involved, you know, contributed immensely. You look back and go, hey, you know, we did some amazing, we created some amazing images, we told an amazing story. I think that's it. That's that's the that's the end goal. You want to do that, you know, at the highest level of craft possible. Yeah, I think that's that's it. It's it's as simple as that. <laughs> You're at the highest level. Uh, I know it it may sound shallow, but you know, <laughs> no, I, I I don't think <laughs> that, it that's is. Just. <laughs> it's that's just the truth you just want to feel you want to have a sense of actualization because when you say at the highest level it's just you want to feel like you got your shot and when you got your shot you did exactly what you were able to do and you had all the resources to make this thing and this amazing story as amazing as it could have been and should be i think as human beings we all have there's that thing that we have as human beings where you just want to be somewhere in in like historic memory i'm not saying that i want me to be in historic memory per se but somewhere you know in i think the existence of human beings you've had people that have seen the images that you've been part of creating and it's played a very small part or role in their lives like you know we're from wherever i think that's something about innate about human beings and knowing that you know like you created images that will long outlive you i think that's the power that you know film has yes i guess to have things that can... Where, 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 what, what's your, what's your, you know, where, where do you see your thing? What, what's your, what's your sort of ultimate uh, objective or goal? Like, what, what's your dream? <laughs> uh, it's very similar to yours, but it's, for me, it's also creative freedom. Right now, I have become a very scatterbrained creative in that I feel like I have to do three to five things, actually not even three to five, five to eight things at the same time to function and to have a shot at getting something made and to kind of, like today, I've, I've done multiple pitches, I've done like seven different things where I've not, fo- I've not had the luxury of being able to focus on one or like two things and say sure. all I want to focus on are these one and two things I would love to be at a place where I can then I have enough freedom and comfort in what my art has given me and what my art can do that I can then state for a specific amount of time I can do these two projects and there is a roadmap that I can take that will say that after having done these projects everything will be okay. So a lot of even the stuff that we do here, because I have this podcast, African Film, I have the All That Yes podcast. It's about not just helping myself, but giving other people roadmaps or at least saying, hey, this thing exists. Because when I read the article about DMC, I was dumbfounded for a good like week. I didn't realize how inherent well, I realized how inherent cinematography and photography is, well, the, the the biases that exist in it purely because of also colorism and just how I've struggled to see darker skin really portrayed well and, and besides the last five years of things. But when you see that actively, you've, you've got that thought, it then sticks in your brain the next time something, you, you're doing something that, okay, I can think about this as a thing. So... Right now, I feel like the stage of my life is trying to feed um, the 10 to 15-year-old me and 18-year-old me all the knowledge I wish I had gotten. That's kind of part of why I call myself, yeah, as a student, I'm always learning and I'm always trying to get more 
contextualized African knowledge and African, uh, when I say African, done by Africans or done by Black people, doesn't that not quote unquote <laughs> African? But in the next five years, I really just would like to be at a place where I can be a fully functioning artist that is working and crafting art and has built enough of an ecosystem that I can then focus on just, not just focus on doing art, but I have the freedom to know that I can focus on doing the art and that the art will then sustain itself. Whether it's podcasts, we have the showcase, we have um, films which we've independently funded, but it's building enough space to craft the voice that I want to have and feel confident in being able to explore what that voice is and can be because it's not what the current mainstream voice is. So I have to, <laughs> we have to you build know, the I, space. It, it, takes, it, it takes a hell of a vision to, to first just to see it and then building it. I think, you, you know, you're probably on the journey to building it because you've seen it. But hopefully you succeed, man. I think there isn't enough platforms like, you know, the ones that you're creating right now where we can have these conversations. You know, when we first had a phone call, I think it was like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we first had a discussion Yeah. Uh, about like opening up the dialogue and having the conversations and kind of critiquing each other and that kind of becoming a, a way of, uh, you know, learning and progressing. I don't think we have enough of that in South Africa. And yeah, I think, you know, hopefully you become that catalyst for, for dialogue. We're still in a space where making a film is it's a privilege, but we're still happy. We still celebrate, you know, just a film being able to be made and put out. I feel like we now have to evolve and be appreciate appreciative that we can pick up a camera, absolutely. But now it's like let's start critiquing our artworks, let's start critiquing the body of work that we're making, and not in, a, in an attempt to be negative, but in an way in an attempt to kind of like grow each other. Yeah. I think that's something that if you look at, you know, overseas, particularly in the US, there's a culture of critiquing and refining. There's an inherent growth that comes that uh, I think we still need to adjust to. Again, maybe I'm misinformed. I do live in a I think dark box. It, 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 it's it's growing. Watch the younger, there, there are a lot of younger critics or younger um, analysts that are actually i'll send you a podcast i've done a podcast i'll please, send you please do man i, w I would love to see it <laughs> really it's, it's 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 starting yeah, it's it's not starting it's I think, I, I think it's it's progressive it's progressive um if you asked me this maybe five years ago i would have been like to hell with the critics but i think in the ecosystem of the sort of creative industry i think they are important man they are an essential part of like our evolution if we don't have that mirror again i could call it mirror there's no resistance that kind of propels us to climb over you know that obstacle or whatever the case might be i think that's where to a certain degree critics are uh, you know kind of a valuable earnest critics aspect of just growth Oh yeah, most <laughs> certainly. <laughs> Keyword being earnest. Yes, earnest critics. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's crucial. I think on on the other sort of conversation of you know where where DMC does become crucial is in kind of bridging the gap between art and technology. And I say this in the sense that I think Africa has amazing an amazing footprint or history in traditional art whether that be painting or drawing and mediums of expression that I feel like those haven't really, you know, kind of translated or may have made their way into sort of representation of what film is today. We're still trying to either find what that is or we're just reflecting what is the sort of popular voice, which is, you know, American pop culture. And I think trying to find that essence or the aesthetic of what we could be aesthetically is probably more rooted in what our artists have to say, like I think in the past. I'd love to see, you know, filmmakers reference our artworks, you know, stuff that comes from us. You know, you look, I look at treatments all the time, uh, not to jump around. I look at treatments all the time, whether it be commercial, and it's all in reference of, you know, Western-made images where they're referencing, you know, their paintings, their, paint, their painters and their artists and stuff. And we're referencing them, what they've made as a result of yeah. them referencing their painters and artists and stuff. This is a knock-on effect. And I think I would love to see us kind of, you know, um, find a way to look at our rich art history and have that drive us to make or, you know, to sort of design a technology that is able to sort of be inspired 
uh, by or portray an artist's reference from a painter in Nigeria or Ghana or you know somewhere in South Africa and have that be sort of the sort of lens for what the colors and the sort of choice in lighting and wardrobe look like. I think that'd be really interesting. Maybe that's where maybe the conversation begins in terms of like what is the African aesthetic, uh, you know, whatever that is. It's probably purely subjective, but I think it's a conversational question worth kind of asking, I guess. I think that's a that's a very good place to kind of leave as a thought uh, for this uh, for this specific episode. Um, if you if people want to open up the wormhole, <laughs> <laughs> so if people wanted to um, know more about not just DMC, if people wanted to get in contact with you or follow you, what are the best places to kind of communicate with you or understand more about what it is that you as Indomiso do as well as DMC? Uh, the guys can go on to griotdmc.com, uh, which is you know where you'll find everything you need to know about what DMC is, the projects where it, where it has been applied, also what we kind of specialize in in terms of sort of production service and designing pipelines for, for films. And then, yeah, you know, find me on Instagram, Vimeo, my Instagram name, the most controversial, don't ask me. <laughs> where it comes from <laughs> well now I have to ask. just type in do me some going in and you'll find it uh, you know everybody now calls me Sunny Moon <laughs> it's like Sunny Moon do you know Sunny Moon and it's like oh man I've had to try to explain it a few times and yeah it's <laughs> So his Instagram is aka underscore Sally Moon. It will be in the description um, if your specific podcast streaming service has a text box. Um, so are those your preferred places of communication, the website and Instagram? Yeah. Awesome. There should be there should be there should be emails there. Sorry to cut you off. There should be emails on the website. Awesome. Then thank you so much for giving us uh, your time uh, to explain more about framing African and melanated skin. Uh, uh, this has been, I think, one of the more exploratory conversations, even for myself, in learning just how even small things in filmmaking affect the widest things. We even, we even got into a place where we were talking about self-esteem and how the framing of Black people are told in stories has had an effect on us. Ergo, how we can then help affect future generations for us not to have kind of like the same battles that we're doing. It's been a very informative conversation. It's also been a very philosophical conversation for me. And I thank you for giving us your time. And I hope this conversation was as fruitful or at least engaging for you as it was for me. Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. Yes. Um, I really hope that you continue with what you're doing. We need more of you. I think these conversations are important and having the platforms where, you know, we can dive into uh, the topics and discussions that, you know, we all need to kind of be a part of as you know, as filmmakers and artists alike. Yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully we become the sort of platform for that voice. And yeah, man, can't wait to do it with you soon again. That was the episode of African Film. Thank you so much for listening. Our next episode is due next month as we explore yet another side of the African film industry with an incredible practitioner. Until then, stay safe, fellow cinematic explorers.